Our first reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 16. I, Paul, commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Perseus, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been made known to all nations, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The word of the Lord. We are beginning a new sermon series this week. We just finished off gospel and life as we looked at our vision and values. This is, in a sense, an extension of our vision and values, particularly that part that says we are to be externally focused people. And that comes into play not just outside of the church, but inside of the church, too. This series called Loving your neighbor and the stranger will carry us through the Christmas season. So over the next month, we're going to look at God's call on us to love our neighbor, to have compassion, to cultivate friendships, to open ourselves and our homes to hospitality, to be the sort of people who look outside of ourselves as often as we can. And then in December, um, we're, going to do, we're going to carry on with that by saying, let's not just look to our neighbors, but let's look at God's heart 
for the refugee and the sojourner and the foreigner. It's a part of a biblical theology, if you would, if you trace it from Genesis all the way through, of God's particular passion for those who are outside of the community. And so we're gonna do a 40-day Advent reading that we'll offer up to you at the end of November um, that will take you through verses to be able to read each day to capture God's heart for those furthest away, for the refugee and what the Bible calls the sojourner. My hopes are that this will help us to understand God's heart for all people, that we'll be the sort of people that push a little bit outside of ourselves more than we do right now, and that we as a church would be the sort of church that postures ourselves towards our actual neighbors and towards those who are least able to fight for themselves in this world. So I'm gonna actually pray at the beginning, like Matt Hemsley does, but pray for our whole series that God will use this in our hearts and lives. So let's pray, if you would. God, our Father, you created us to know you, but in knowing you, you created us to love you and to love others. Lord, we are such selfish people. It's so hard to not see our own needs first. I pray that over the coming weeks, as we examine your word, and it sits on our hearts, that your spirit would work to move us outward, to give us eyes to see those around us immediately and those all over who need your grace and mercy through us. Let us be your hands and feet in this world and on our street. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a great a uh, short video on the Q, from the Q Conference done by Andy Crouch, who is an author and Christian thinker called Overcoming Our Greatest Affliction. In this talk, which you should go look up on your own, I'm gonna borrow heavily from it today. Sometimes, basically every preacher is just borrowing things that Jesus said, that Paul said, that some preacher said. I'm actually stealing directly from Andy Crouch today but I'm giving him the credit, so you know, really you can go tell him he's awesome, but I'm gonna retell you some of what he shares as he helps us to see the challenge of our current culture as a result of the modern revolution. He says it like this. The modern revolution started with uh, the transfer of people and moving on to power and prosperity instead, and it began with a financial revolution. This started in the medieval period, the 1300s, 1400s, when the banks were first started, and the economy moved from land-oriented to money-oriented. The result was that all of a sudden the economy was driven on the exchange of just money, as opposed to exchanging interpersonal goods and services. So, in the ancient world, you might have exchanged your blacksmithing for somebody else's wheat. But by the time the banks came in and money, it depersonalized the human interaction for the economy. The next revolution was the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century in which bodies, human bodies used to do all the work, were exchanged for machines that did far greater work, far greater capacity. The human role was no longer as necessary. In the past, you worked on the land side by side. You and your children, your neighbors, you were necessary to work together as a community to farm the land, to build the community. But now machines slowly are taking over. And into the 19th century, it becomes a depersonalized economy built on the financial industry, built on the industrial revolution, and ultimately the technological revolution. The 20th century saw the rise of information 
in the place of wisdom. So in the ancient world, you passed on wisdom from person to person. A community was necessary to hold the information. But now there were ways of cataloging all the information in one place, whether it was the printing press and libraries to the the way that we have now with the whole um, internet and everything being available. Humans are no longer necessary. And we no longer care about wisdom, knowledge that is applied. We just want access to information. And the result is the community is diminished. We don't need community to learn things. And age is diminished. We don't need the wise people in our community anymore. Google is much smarter than a grandparent. The results, Andy Crouch says, have been the most prosperous age in the history of humanity. We have far more abundance. We have everything we could possibly need. And there are more and more people who have access to it. But the negative side is we have traded personhood for power. We have traded personhood for power. Economic power, educational power, power to be able to do whatever we want, the freedom to be able to live how we want. We've exchanged personhood for power. Our economy, and you can see this, it's very obvious, our economy is transactional, not personal. Andy Crouch goes on to give an example. He said it's the convenience store example, right? I walk into a 7-Eleven, get my two Slim Jims and a Gatorade. I go up to the counter, I take out my credit card, I stick it in the chip reading machine, I take it out, I take my goods and I go. If I happen to look at the guy behind the counter's name tag, I might see a name, but I'm not gonna remember it. I don't know who he is, he doesn't know who I am. I don't know his background story, he doesn't know mine. But in our modern economy, 7-Eleven has gotten what they want, the clerk has a job, and I got my two Slim Jims. We're all happy, but there's no personal connection. In a more ancient world, right, you would know the person in your community that made the best sausages. And you would exchange your wheat, or you would exchange your blacksmithing for his sausages so that you could celebrate the the big festival. You knew him and his family, and he knew yours. Today, it's completely impersonal. So while we are incredibly prosperous, we are also less known and by fewer and fewer people. Think about the difference with Jesus' day, right? Jesus is off for some time, starting his ministry, and when he returns to Nazareth, and he preaches in Nazareth, what do the people say? Who does this guy think he is? Isn't he Joseph's son? We know his mom and his brothers and sisters. We know his whole story. In the village of Nazareth, Jesus was known. His whole history was known. The shady parts of his history were known. And it's why they wondered who he thought he was, coming in and preaching the way that he did. The question is, would the same be true for you today? Think about it this way. Don't actually do what I'm going to tell you to do, or at least if you do it, do it very subtly. Look around to those who are sitting nearest you. Don't actually do it. It makes everyone feel uncomfortable. Just sort of, I saw you do it. Just sort of glance. People in front of you, behind you, a couple rows in front of you, people who are not actually related to you. 
if you, and, and maybe they're not your best friends either, okay? So jump at least a couple rows or sides. Do you know their names? Better yet, do you know their parents' names? Do you know where their parents came from? What their parents do in their career, whether they're still alive or not? Do you know anything about the people sitting beside you or near you, besides even their first name? Andy Crouch goes on to say, to win in the modern economy is to be liberated from your family and community of origin. Think about that. We gain power and prosperity at the expense of personhood, our own personhood and that of others. And so we come to the place where we are in our modern world where there is a loneliness epidemic, as Dr. Vivek Muthe Murthy said. He was a former Surgeon General, and in his article in the Harvard Business Review from a couple of years ago, he summed up the growing epidemic of loneliness as one of the greatest health crises that's hitting and will continue to hit our country. Loneliness is a growing health epidemic. We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Today, over 40% of adults in America report feeling lonely, and research suggests the real number may well be higher. This is the culture we live in. Depersonalized, dehumanized, and incredibly prosperous. Which is why we go to the gospel every week. The gospel is the antidote to a dehumanized and lonely society. Think about how much the gospel elevates the human in all of its story. Whether you go back to Genesis and the creation, where God creates everything and says, it's good, it's good, it's good, but then he creates humanity and said, it's very good. And he makes humanity in his image, in the image of God he makes them. And he calls them into relationship with him and with one another. Of course, the fall breaks that breaks that relationship, but that's what we are made for. We're made for high value and we're made for relationships. And God then comes back at the redemption, at the story of redemption in his incarnation and says, I care enough about humanity to enter it. And God personalizes his relationship with everyone he's walking around seeing and touching. And he dies to redeem people because he cares about people. The gospel, when you let it sink in, creates a whole new set of values, counter to every culture. The way up is down. The first will be last and last will be first, right? In our culture, the good life is advancement. Get an education, get a career, make more money, be prosperous. The gospel doesn't say those are bad things. But the gospel says, if you want to gain life, lose it. Lose your life for Christ's sake. Loving your neighbor, maybe even your enemy. People, according to the gospel, matter more than power or prosperity. You know, our culture isn't the first one to do this. The Romans did it as well. The Romans were one of the first cultures to completely dehumanize and depersonalize people. 
They valued power and wealth and status and greatly diminished personhood for all but the very few. The Romans were the first to widely mint coins. They made money. The economy didn't need relationships anymore. Exchange of the coin with Caesar on it enabled people to get things. The Romans were far advanced in engineering and machines, able to build the sorts of things like an aqueduct or some of the buildings that cultures before them could not build. Human labor was still necessary, but the machines made them less necessary. And knowledge became this thing that was drawn from all cultures. No longer was it local civilization. They were pulling from the Greeks and North Africans and the Jewish culture, and they put it in libraries, and they had this vast amount of information and knowledge. They were also incredibly prosperous. But the prosperity was only in the ruling classes in Rome. And legal personhood, legal status as an actual human being was very, very limited. Only the paterfamilias, the head of the entire patriarchal household, only the head had total legal status as a human being. Everyone else had variations of, of derivative personhood below that. Sons who could inherit the land owned by the father had some level of personhood that would come into full play if they actually got the inheritance. Women only had personhood in relation to the men they were tied to, their husbands, their brothers, their fathers. And then there were slaves. Slaves who were there by being in debt, by being captured in the foreign wars, they were separated from their family and their community of origin, and they had no official status as persons. You see this, according to Andy Crouch, in the names that are given. The names that are given to slaves are not personal names. They're names like this, Tertius, which means third, because Tertius was probably the third in his mom's family. His mother was likely a slave, and she had multiple children, he was the third. There's your name, third. First, second, third, fourth. That's your name. There's another guy whose name is useful. It's based on his role. His Greek name is Onesimus. Here's what you do, you're useful. Or you were named for the household that you served in. Your name might be Herodian because you were a slave in the household of Herod. Or you were just described like one slave who's called dainty because she was small. Roman culture completely depersonalized, stripping humanity from many people. Only the patriarchs at the very top had full status. Everyone else was an economic part of the cog, a cog in the wheel. They, they were just a part of the machine. And you, well, a couple of you mattered. The rest of you did not. But the gospel, of course, overturns that, doesn't it? Into this world, Jesus comes. He's preaching grace and new life, and he's welcoming the poor and the prostitute and the possessed. He's healing a centurion slave, and he's caring for those at the far reaches of society. Jesus claims himself to come to seek and save the lost, basically saying, everyone matters. Everyone matters to me. That's why I came. The gospel makes a new humanity 
that is based on grace, saying everyone matters and everyone matters equally. This is incredibly radical. We get it in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter three, verse 28. One of the most radical statements in the ancient world where Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free, you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is absurdity to the Roman world. That didn't make sense to a Jewish mindset. But the gospel created an altogether new humanity where everyone had equal access to the grace and mercy of God. Everyone was sinful, everyone needed Jesus, and anyone could come. And anyone who came was equally a member of the family. And that's why I forced David Honer to read that long greeting list in Romans chapter 16. That greeting list is not just a cast off. Sociologists have studied it saying this is absolutely remarkable. The list of names, there's 26 names listed in in Romans 16. There are Jews and Romans and Greeks listed. There are rich people and there are poor people, high status and slaves. There are 17 men and nine women. Look at what it says there in the first couple verses. I, Paul, commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. He's basically saying, hey, look, here's a woman coming to you, church in Rome. Receive her. She is a wonderful sister in the Lord. She has done great things. Phoebe was a high caste woman who was wealthy. This list doesn't just include the wealthy, though, which that ancient world would have done. It also includes the least. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. These are two women who have descriptive names that the New Testament scholars say mean dainty and delicate. They were slaves. Slaves that were simply described. But Paul says, greet Phoebe, that rich woman who's coming. Oh yeah, and she's a woman. And greet the slave girls. Greet them too. And when Paul says greet, which the whole thing has a whole long list of greet, he's not saying say hi to. Like we say, hey, could you greet so-and-so? Basically, you know, can you say hi to your family? We basically don't really mean much more than, oh, Johnny said hi. That's it. But one New Testament scholar says when that word greet is used, Paul is saying with name after name after name, church in Rome, I want you to receive these people. Wrap your arms around them and embrace them. Basically, treat them as family. Welcome them fully into your community. They are not outsiders. These are part of your family. So think about that when Paul is listing in this depersonalized patriarchal culture, and he's listing names, name after name after name. This Jewish man, this slave girl, this head of household, this couple, these two guys you've never heard of, they are people and they matter. This woman, this slave, this incredibly wealthy, high-status guy, they are my brothers and sisters. They are all my family. I want you to welcome them and love them and treat them as yours. And then one of the most beautiful is this final greeting in verse 22 and 23. Verse 23 lists two high-class people. 
Gaius, who was rich enough to have the whole church in Corinth worship at his house, and Erastus, a city treasurer. So he's listing two people of high social status, one who was clearly wealthy and one who was a ruler in the city of Corinth. But notice what verse 22 says. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius means third. He's a slave. Most scribes were slaves. So Paul's probably dictating, and Tertius had been trained how to be a scribe. Write it all down quickly, shorthand, translate it into Greek, make it a full Greek manuscript, with Paul overseeing it. Scribes never signed a paper. They were irrelevant. They were non-human. Except to Paul, because of the gospel. It's as if Paul is saying, Tertius, why don't you say something too? Go ahead. You matter. You're one of us. You're one in Christ. You're not my servant. You are my brother. Go ahead. And he writes his own name down. I too greet you. Tertius, I was a nobody. But in Christ, I know I matter. So, when the lawyer, which basically means a Jewish religious scholar, asked Jesus in Luke 10, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns it back around to him and says, well, what is the, what is the you know, how do you sum up the law? Well, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, do that. Go ahead, make the Lord God first and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you're good. Now the lawyer, being a head of household, a Jewish male in a Jewish culture, is challenged because Jesus is saying it's not enough to be a Jewish male head of household. That might get you somewhere in society, but it doesn't get you anywhere in the kingdom of God. Nor is it enough to simply avoid sins and do all the religious duty you're supposed to do. Jesus is saying to the man, if God matters to you, then people will too. Love your neighbor. And the man seeking to justify himself says very cleverly, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the famous Good Samaritan story, which we're going to hear more of next week when Matt Hemsley comes and preaches. But if you go through the story of the Good Samaritan, the guys on the side of the road, the priest and Levite, they pass by, but a Samaritan, the hated culture, comes and takes care of him at great expense to himself. And most commentators will tell you that at the end, you get the sum of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus asked the ruler again, the, the lawyer, he said, so which one of these was a neighbor? Who proved to be the neighbor? And it's the one who had compassion who stopped and was generous. The person who had acts of compassion and kindness and generosity, that was the neighbor. Many other commentators point out that by citing the Samaritan, Jesus was also pushing on the, inherent, the, the, the prejudice and racism in the Jewish culture. Many of us read the Good Samaritan today and we look for those who we have prejudice and bias against, which is good, we should do that. 
Or we look to those we just don't like, like the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, so who is it I don't like? Who on my street, who in my neighborhood, who in my cult work? Who, who, what sort of people do I not like? I should love them too. But I think if Jesus told this parable today in Northern Virginia, it's possible that the primary thing he would not be saying is I want you to love people that you dislike because that's not our biggest issue. I think he would say, I want you to love your neighbors. You know, the actual people who live near you. Can you get out of your house and love people right next door? In The Art of Neighboring, a book written by two pastors from Denver, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon, they say that they gathered together a bunch of pastors and they got the mayor, I think of Denver, but it might have been a surrounding area, to sit with them, and they said, what can we do to better our city? And here's what the mayor, not a Christian, said to this gathering of pastors. He said, the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. Pathak and Runyon say, the mayor was inviting a group of pastors to get their people to simply obey Jesus. Hey, could you get your people to love their neighbor? Because that would really help the city. <laughs> he said they all left feeling completely shamed. <laughs> Pathak and Runyon asked then, what if Jesus meant what he said? Love your neighbor. And he meant your actual neighbors. Yes, the people who are near you at work or near you at school, but definitely also the people who are near you on your street. And in the book, they provide uh, a block map, and I gave you one for your own enjoyment and shame. If you haven't seen one of these, this block map is meant to be you, your house in the middle. And what Runyon and Pathak in the book ask is, can you name the names of all the people who are immediately around you, the apartments or houses right around you. Everyone in the house, could you name them? Some of you have it easy, you're in a cul-de-sac. <laughs> Let's simplify this a little bit for ourselves. Let's cut some of the streets or some of the houses. The next, the next slide. So let's just get rid of the ones like, because where my house is, there's houses on either side and across. There's not behind me, I can't, there's fences and things. It's another street. Could you name the names of those people? Then they go on to say, can you give me any information about them that would require you to actually talk to them? Not drives a blue car. And can you go a step further and say, Here's stuff that I know about them, their dreams, their fears, the challenges they've experienced in life, some of their career hopes, some of their biggest worries, what they believe. Could you do this with all of your neighbors? What would it look like to love the actual people right in front of us, our actual neighbors? This is hard. We live in a depersonalized and independent 
society. We live our lives very independent of one another. To actually get to know and love your neighbors, even in the simplest ways of being able to answer these sorts of questions, would be costly. It would involve a lot of time, invasion of your privacy and theirs. It would involve some version of changing our life patterns that are built around our own agenda. And you'd have to start somewhere, right? You'd have to like breach the conversations somewhere, which is kind of weird. You don't want to be the weird guy on your street and possibly they're weird. You don't really want to talk to them. <laughs> and we're selfish. We actually don't need the people who live across the street or next door to us, right? We, we want to live independent. But I think God's calling us to very simple things. To move beyond ideas, personal devotions, move beyond just being a part of a church, move beyond the bottom line, move beyond a depersonalized economy, and move towards people. I've seen God moving me slowly in this direction. Years ago, I prayed for compassion because I didn't naturally have it. God began to move me in compassion for people. I've been confronted by many people in my life about the way that I've treated them or hurt them. And I've seen it modeled, loving actual people, caring about people over our own agenda. Seen it modeled in my wife and the way she cares for people and been challenged to look out and see people, actual individuals, and care about their story. The gospel, if you let it sink in, will push you deeper in and out. Jesus pushes us out. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, sociologist Rodney Stark cites the remarkable growth of Christianity in the first centuries. And he says, Christianity did not spread from a few dozen people in 30-some A.D. to about 10,000, 40,000, around 100, to 6 million 200 years later, a 40% growth rate. It did not spread that way because they had good programs or excellent video production or awesome singles events or great youth retreats, the best flannel graphs at their VBS. Christianity spread, it overcame Roman culture by love of one another and love of their neighbor and by a gospel of grace in which women and poor and rich and men experienced personhood and community. In John 1.14, translated by Eugene Peterson, we read the word, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So great. God cares about people, about humans, about us, about you, about the people who live across the street or next door to you. He moved into our neighborhood and he loved us. He calls us to experience life to the full in him and to go and do the same. Let's pray. Jesus, you are love embodied. You came and entered our neighborhood to love us.
And then you call us to do the same. Lord, give us eyes to see, to assess where we value power or prosperity or money over people. To have the heart of Jesus and look out in love and give ourselves to those nearest us. In Jesus' name, amen.